0: Well, good morning, uh, once again, please open with me and your copy of the Scripture to Second John. Here we are returning to John's letters after a break for Advent Christmas, then the Epiphany. Today we'll look at Second John and next week we'll look at Third John. Second and Third John are the two shortest books in the New Testament, both about 200 Greek words. And in terms of practical exhortation, they form really two sides of the same coin, talking about extending hospitality or not extending hospitality and fellowship as it relates to gospel ministry and orthodox teaching. Now, in terms of Second John, just some background information since the way we have it is a is a separate letter um, the author is content here to identify himself as the elder, which would apparently have been sufficient for the audience to know who it was and that this person had some clout. But there are two things that suggest that John explicitly is the author. The first is just the incredible amount of similarity between Second John and First John. And you probably heard so many of those themes as the text was read for you just a second ago. It almost reads like a summary of First John. Which leads to the second consideration. And that is, the more and more I've studied it, it suggests that 2 John uh, might have been a cover letter, and in my opinion probably was, a cover letter for 1 John. Remember, 1 John doesn't have any formal greeting at the beginning. And if you look at the end of 1 John, there's no uh, departing greetings. It just ends with, keep yourself from idols. The end that is very very strange for a letter of this time very very strange to have no introductory or departing greetings but it's not nearly as strange if it circulated outside of John's closest community with a what we might call a cover letter that in fact did have both of those things second john having both introductory greetings and final greetings. It also fits well with the early church, the, at least the earliest church, only knowing two letters of John, not three. Why is that? Likely because Second John circulated with First John, and what we call Third John uh, is really uh, John's second letter to one of his friends, while first and second John circulated together to the churches in the region. Both of them addressed more generically where 3 John we're going to see is going to be addressed to a man named Gaius or Gaius. So because of this, I want to suggest that 2 John is written at the same time as 1 John. It was written to the same group of churches in the region of Ephesus where John eventually settled around 85 or 90 AD. And the, the issues are the same. The issues are the same as they have been as we've gone through 1 John. The elect lady, verse 1, and the elect sister, verse 13, are far more likely to be churches, a church, multiple churches in the region, than they are to be individual women. Uh, Church, I mean, for a number of reasons, including the fact that the church itself, even though the word is not explicitly mentioned, is a feminine word, um, the Bride of Christ, theologically larger, large, in a broader theological scope in the New Testament, is depicted as a woman. But in my opinion, the most decisive reason for thinking that it's churches is that if it was addressed to a particular woman, it would be very difficult to explain how all who know the truth love her. It be like the most popular woman in the whole world. Okay, It would be the most well-known popular woman in the whole world if if all who know the truth love her. What's much more likely is we're talking about all those who know the truth in the region know of these particular churches or a particular local church. Having said that, then, what is the main point of 2 John? The main point of 2 John is that Christians should walk in the truth they have received from the beginning and not aid in perpetuating anything different. They should not aid in perpetuating anything different. And this latter part is likely the concern, the practical concern that motivates the writing of 1 John and 2 John at the time it was sent. John is giving specific, practical instructions for how to combat the spread of false teaching. It's almost certainly the same kind of false teaching, and you, you, you had to have heard some of the similarity, that we found in 1 John. The text itself is very straightforward. You've heard it read. And it reads as a fantastic summary of 1 John. So let's walk through it together. This morning, John writes to the the elder, to the elect lady and her children who I love in the truth. And not only I, but all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, And peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love that will be with us. He's saying, hey, you all are on the same team as I am, as those with me are. John continues his thick understanding of the truth as well as the theme of abiding. And it's this time that he says that the truth, that is to say, what has been revealed in Christ What's been revealed in Christ and how to live before Him is what abides in us. And he's saying it doesn't abide just temporarily. He says it abides enduringly, forever. And it is the foundational reason that the elect lady and her children are loved. This truth. Not mutual affinity. Not because of geographical proximity. It is on account of this truth that the elect lady and her children are loved. He explicitly mentions... That Jesus Christ is the Father's Son. You remember that from the corporate prayer. You're like, oh, that just seems seems like an odd way to say it. That's exactly how he says it here. Okay? From God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. Verse 3. So he explicitly identifies the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, with Jesus Christ. He continues, or he prefaces in one sense, this high Christology that we saw in 1 John. He greets them, grace, mercy, and peace. He says that the spirit of the letter, the tone of the letter, is one of truth and love. These two themes that dominate John's writing. Certainly John's letters. And so, he then says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And as we know, John had heard reports. John had heard reports and he was dealing with this same phenomenon in his own church that there were people who had gone out. That there was a problem of false doctrine looming. He says... That he rejoiced that some of them are walking in the truth as they were commanded by the Father. So this isn't something that's optional. It's not an option for super-Christians. But he does register some suspicion. Now, when we read the word some, it makes it sound like minority. Some, like not like, like, you know, out of 100, some is like, you know, 20 or something. That's that's not what it means, though, here. You know, logically, you have all, none, and some. That's it, right? Some just means not all. So it seems that what he's doing in light of what's going on is he is registering his personal suspicion that everyone who's going to be hearing this letter is of the truth while simultaneously acknowledging that there have, in fact, been folks who have already gone out from them. 1 John 2.19, who have abandoned the truth. And so what he commands in request form, it is is an ask, but it's an ask that takes the form of a command. He asks them to obey, not surprisingly, what they have heard from the beginning. He says, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. And so here we encounter this same kind of circularity, that we saw in 1st John. And that we heard in the first scripture reading. He reminds. He reminds the elect lady here. To walk according to the commandment. To love one another. And then says that loving one another. Consists in what? Walking according to the commandments. You see that? Love and obedience to the truth for John. Are a package deal. Love. And obedience to the truth for John are a package deal. Not only that, they are mutually requiring and mutually entailing. You can't do one without the other, and if you do one, you have if you do one truly, you have to be about doing the other one as well. And so it is perhaps John, more than any other New Testament author, who explicitly clarifies that not everything that is claimed to be loving. Not everything that someone says feels loving. Not every effort that was motivated by love is actually loving. Loving one another entails obedience. It entails holiness. There is not for John a generic concept of love in his context. For whatever else you could say about love in a broader sense. That's not what John is interested in articulating. He is articulating a distinctively Christian understanding of love that he expects to be present in the churches. And that is not some kind of novel idea, he says. This is what was from the beginning. You know what's novel is the idea that you can love without obeying or that you can obey without loving. That's what's novel. That's the novel idea. What's been from the beginning is that obedience entails loving one another. Meeting concrete needs especially. Bearing with one another in love. Supporting one another. Praying for one another. Obedience entails that. And if I am truly loving, then I'm going to be walking in obedience and I'm going to be desiring obedience. Again, what's novel is not this. It's the idea, like these who, those folks who have gone out, that you could say that you're obeying but not loving the brothers and sisters. It's a kind of love and obedience Characteristic of those who have departed. Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, now that is strong language. Listen to how similar it is though to First John chapter 2, 18-22. For he writes, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. They've already come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, he says in 20. And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And so as we learn in 1 John The idea that Christ had come in the flesh is more than a bald statement about God in a body. It's understood within his messianic context that he came on a messianic mission to atone for sin. To use the language of 1 John 5, this kind of water-only Jesus, a Jesus that had a ministry of baptism and who was baptized himself, Is not a Jesus at all. He has to be accepted for everything that he claimed to be and everything that he claimed to do, including shedding blood for the remission of sin to provide a propitiation for the world. 1 John chapter 2, 2. So, these people who have gone out are claiming most likely this... uh, enlightened kind of knowledge from the Holy Spirit that they have a development on the Christ tradition. They have a different understanding of exactly what Christ came to do. And they are, in virtue of that, anti-Jesus. John does not mince words. They are anti-Jesus. They are quite literally anti-Christs who anticipate this lawless one This great deceiver, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, who is to come. And he tells them then to be on guard. He tells them to be on guard. Watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. So that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. He issues an explicit pastoral warning, doesn't he? He issues an explicit pastoral warning to be on guard from being lured away from the path that leads to a full reward. A path that they have labored for. What is that full reward? It is that when He appears, we will be like Him. He is clearly talking about something future. What He has labored for is one thing. But what He has labored for lies in the future. John's eyes are not looking back to something that happened in the past and saying... Be careful that you don't lose something that you had back then. He's saying, be careful as you move this way to something that you have truly not grasped yet, but is promised to you. Now, we did a whole Sunday school class or two on this. But let me just say, do the presence of warnings such as this undermine the perseverance of the saints? The idea that everyone who is truly a believer and has truly been buried with Christ in baptism, will also be raised up one day, that there are no dropouts. The answer is no, it doesn't. My understanding of the warnings of Scripture is that they are a part of the means of perseverance themselves. I don't have time to go into the whole doctrine. I don't have time to give the whole explanation, but you can find it on our website and Sermon Audio. The idea is that warnings... Are what God uses to accomplish preservation in the same way that God uses evangelism to accomplish the Great Commission. Not everyone just gets miracled into the kingdom of God. God is a God of means, but He's also a God of, uh, excuse me, God is a God of ends, but He's also a God of means, and He ordains and is sovereign over both. And so warnings in Scripture actually have causal effect. That preserve believers. Just like when I warn my son, when I say to him, you know, if you put your hand up on the oven, you're gonna get burned. That plays a huge causal role in keeping him safe. Okay? Or just like the warning on a bottle of poison, it protects people from drinking it. The warnings of scripture advance the perseverance of the saints. They are the causal means by which one of the One of the causal means by which God has chosen to preserve believers instead of taking them out of the world immediately, making them sinless instantly. I mean, He could have done it another couple of ways. This is how God has chosen to do it in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 9, we see John's dualism again as he lays out two paths. There are only two. There's no middle path. No trail the first path is the path of the one who goes ahead. Now, this is translated a variety of ways. Running ahead, wandering away, going too far, going beyond the teaching. Everyone who goes on ahead. But regardless of how you translate it, the idea is the same. It is someone going and remaining where they are not supposed to be. And certainly in our context, we're not talking about you know geographically. You know, you're not supposed to go over here. The idea is theologically and therefore morally, someone has gone off the path. They have gone beyond. They've gone too far. They've gone past the the, the leader, the person who's directing. Whatever the case may be, they're not supposed to be there. They're in the wrong place theologically. They're in the wrong place as a result morally. The one who goes ahead is someone who should be abiding and remaining in the teaching, but isn't. But isn't. They're not doing it. And those not abiding in the teaching, very frankly, don't have Christ. For John, it's just that simple. You don't have Christ. On the other hand, the one who abides in what they have heard from the beginning has both the Father and the Son. And again, we can't help but notice the resemblance, First John chapter 2. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And what you heard from the beginning, if, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. First John 2.25 And this is the promise that He made to us eternal life this is this full reward that is ahead of us that is ahead of us it's promised to us but we haven't laid hold of it yet there is truly something that we do not yet have that he is urging us to be careful to watch our life and doctrine so that we can attain it is this teaching that has since been since the beginning unchanged and if the fact that there is false teaching and if the fact that there's been false teaching and, and the fact that it has started creeping into the church, it, it, churches in the region is the background for First and Second John, it seems like verses 10 and 11 are the pastoral purpose of writing it when it was written amidst the schism. This seems to be like, why, why exactly was John writing? It seems to be something like verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. I'm going to return to this in application, but what John is doing is he is urging some very practical means to stop the spread Of false teaching. This is nothing less than a call to action to preserve the purity and integrity of the church. One scholar sums it up very well. The Christian church with its orthodox creeds and practices has long been established but when the elder wrote the infant church was most vulnerable. The decentralized, scattered groups of Christians in the first century before the New Testament existed relied on itinerant teachers and preachers. Those who had gone out with a false message had departed from the elders' church. That perhaps made them all the more dangerous. Their former association with the elders' church may have created a perception of good standing that could deceive The outlying churches in the region. That may account for the harshness with which the elder expresses his warnings to protect the integrity of the infant church. The issues had to be drawn in black and white. Black and white, baby. That's it. Do not let them in your house. Do not extend to them a greeting. Now church leaders in every decade and every century have to address concrete circumstances that arise with the options and resources and courses of action available to them, and that's exactly what John is doing here. The the exhortation by John is explicitly designed to curb, to stifle, and maybe, hopefully, entirely gag the spread of false teaching by refusing to show hospitality to those who have gone ahead or those who have gone beyond the teaching. Now, some people have wondered if, when it says, "Do not give him any greeting," means like literally, don't even say hello. That's a good question, but I think that's an overreading of the text, and I'll tell you why. It's because it's difficult to understand, and most commentators acknowledge this. It's difficult to uh, how you could understand if someone was bringing false teaching if you didn't even have a conversation with them, if you didn't even have an initial greeting like "hi." You know, hello, my name is whoever. In other words, if you're going to figure out whether they've gone beyond the teaching, it seems like you have to meet them, you have to say something to even make a judgment call about whether or not you're going to accommodate them in your home. That makes sense, right? Instead, the emphasis seems to be not on, you know, refusing to say hello or something like that, but greeting someone as it relates to hospitality, being hospitable towards them. A greeting very much like the greeting at the beginning and end of New Testament letters that suggests we're on the same team and you and what you bring are welcome. Karen Jobes, who has one of the best commentaries on John's letters, writes this. She says, extending hospitality in Greco-Roman culture gave one's guests a standing in the community equal to one's own standing. Therefore, to provide shelter and food for travelers was not simply a hospitable act. It had social ramifications beyond the immediate household involved. Another historian says, hospitality was not only a social necessity, but also established or reinforced bonds between different communities building up the networking that was such an important feature of the growth of the early church. And so, so understood, we can see why John says something that to us maybe sounds like the harsh treatment of someone who comes professing to be a believer, which, remember, is what everyone who had gone out would have professed. Remember, the folks who went out didn't profess that they'd turned their back on Jesus and were atheists or something like that. They had gone out claiming that they were the true followers of Jesus, but that they had a developed teaching, that they had learned more, that they had gone on ahead past what was delivered from the beginning, holding the name of Christ, but not actually holding to the teaching of Christ or embracing Christ as Messiah who had come in the flesh. And so he says don't show them hospitality to extend hospitality to extend greetings to extend this kind of welcome is to participate in their evil it is to participate in their wicked works even if you're not if you don't believe it yourself or you're not uh, the one up there preaching it John turns to his final greetings Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Obviously, because of how John closes the letter, the folks who would have been reading it, he would have expected to be uh, close enough where he, an elderly man at this point in life, could have plausibly visited So this wasn't some letter to the other side of the world. Again, very plausibly it circulated with 1 John. But he says he hopes to come. He he says there's a lot more to say, but I don't want to say it in writing, but apparently apparently he thought that this was such a pressing matter that there had to be practical action taken to stop the spread of false teaching that even though he couldn't you know, get up and head out right then, it was worth sending a letter to cut it off. I'll get there when I can and we can do a deep dive on this, John's saying. But right now, here's what you need to know. Don't put anyone up who doesn't, tell you, who doesn't hold to the teaching that has once and for all been delivered to the saints, that has been delivered from the beginning. Christians should walk in the truth that they received from the beginning and not aid in perpetuating anything different. Now, that concludes 2 John. What are we to make of 2 John in terms of applying the content? You know, 10 and 11 present two very closely related but separate issues. The first is there is a charge not to advance someone or something that undercuts the Gospel. And the second is a question about when association and fellowship with wickedness itself becomes a wicked act by participation. That is to say, I'm not doing it, but because I'm associated with it in a certain way, I become culpable for it. So I take it the first one is more straightforward. Our disposition towards those who are seeking to undercut the gospel in word or lifestyle, even as they profess to be united to Christ, our disposition should be one of deterrence and not one of accommodation. I take it that's a very straightforward piece of application right here. Okay, You don't have to be a seminarian or a pastor to get that. If someone is advancing something that is undercutting the Gospel, then seeking to perpetuate their falsehood, seeking to perpetuate that sin is not something that Christians should be about. Our disposition should be one of not doing anything by association or interaction that we personally believe would advance Falsehood or sin or undercut the gospel. That's a conscience issue. If I feel like my interaction with this person is going to do this, then I shouldn't do it. That's the first part. The second part is a little bit more challenging. Because it raises the following question, doesn't it? When is it exactly that particular associations and interactions with sin or sinful people sinful themselves when in what, what what kinds of associations exactly with sin cause me to actually take part in someone's wickedness and sin myself by my interaction accommodation whatever with them now that is a great question it's a great question that i'm going to try to sketch a pastoral and a a framework for thinking through these issues in the run of regular life where I understand that it gets messy and I understand that everyone's going to be thinking about their own, you know, particular instance or example as I'm going through this. But let me just lay out the paradigm. I'll give some examples. We'll close and then everyone can come ask questions or send emails. Okay. I see three tiers of perpetuating sin in the New Testament nicely summarized between Romans one thirty-two and 2 John 11. And that is these three tiers. Direct action, participation. I take to be the same thing. Approval of sin. Accommodation of sin. All, All three are ways of perpetuating sin. The first one is directly The second two are indirectly, but all of them are sinful. Now, we aren't in the book of Romans, but for the sake of giving an application and providing a framework and and not just saying, trust me, if you look at Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking about the unrighteous and participating with them. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, at the very end, he writes this, though they know God's righteous decree, That those who practice such things deserve to die, not only, excuse me, they not only do them, direct participation, direct action, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They give their approval. I assume that what it means to directly sin with a bunch of other folks doesn't need a lot of explanation. Other people are sinning, you go do the same thing, you're sinning. Okay, we got that one out of the way. But here in Romans 132, Paul condemns of, of sin, uh, excuse me, he condemns sinning, but he also condemns approving of sin. Words or actions that give my endorsement or my affirmation of sin, even if I'm not directly doing it. Okay, even if I'm not the one who is actually involved. And in fact, we might actually think, who knows, Paul might have himself in mind here as an example. Because do you remember the stoning of Stephen? The people came and they laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, to all appearances, Saul didn't throw a stone. But he was sitting there approving of it. People were taking off their garments because that's what you did when you stoned somebody. You can't have a stain. You can't have like blood splattered on your garment. So you remove your garment. It's in safekeeping in the hands of this zealous young man. Then they stoned Stephen and Paul. Approved. Direct participation in sin. I'm sinning. I'm approving sin. And then John introduces the third category here accommodating sin. You know, maybe I'm a first century church member, and I don't hold to this person's teaching. I hear what they say, you know, and I think, well, that's wrong. But you know what? Uh, You know, what an opportunity for evangelism. What an opportunity to have this person in my home. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've gone beyond the teaching, but this is an opportunity to bring them in here And then our family can instruct them. And hey, we can invite them to church Well, they'll hear the teaching. And John in, in this context says, Nope! Nope! Because in that context, falsehood and sin will still be perpetuated despite my good desires what will be communicated will be commu- what will be communicated publicly and what will happen as a result of that the effects that it will have will occur regardless of my intent deep down in my heart and so that's why he's saying don't do it this isn't your time to be a miniature elder i i hope to come all right the teaching guard the teaching but if, this, if people come doing this, do you understand what it's going to do? What it's going to accomplish if you accommodate them in your home and you show that kind of hospitality? You heard those quotes that I read from those historians as theologians. It wasn't merely hospitality. It communicated very loudly to the community equal standing or to use the phrase I've been using that we're on the same team in some important relevant way and in John's case he's saying no you aren't no you aren't they aren't loving the brothers they believe they're they're, in other words they're wrong in their doctrine critically which was resulting in them sinning and not loving one another something objectively bad will happen regardless of what I think I'm doing So if you want one example, kind of one picture that captures all three of these, so you can remember so you don't walk out of here and forget, because what gets forgotten and doesn't get to Monday morning doesn't help anybody, think of here's three examples. Direct participation is the parent who gets drunk with their teenage kids. okay? I'm a parent who gets drunk with my teenage kids. Direct participation. Second. Hey, I've got a headache and I've got to go to bed early. I'm not drinking, but I'm going to buy the liquor so that y'all can drink up in the bonus room, I tell my teenage kids. All right? That would be approving, but not participating. Third example would be the someone who says, you know what those kids are going to do after, after the prom or after that event? They're all going to go drinking. Do you want, does that, do I want them to drink? No, no, we don't want them to drink, but we know they're going to do it anyways. So let's make it safe. All right, everyone can come over to our house and we'll just take everybody's keys so they can't drive. Okay? I don't approve of what you're doing, but I know you're going to do it anyways. Here's a safe space to go sin, and I'll take your keys. You see that? Direct participation. Approval. I approve of what you're doing, but I'm not going to participate. Accommodation. I'm not going to participate and I don't approve, but I'm going to explicitly accommodate you doing it. I'm going to make it easier. I'm going to provide a space for it and thereby encourage it contextually. Now, we are not in the same context as John's audience. Okay? Having someone stay at your house or eating a meal with somebody or inviting them to church in the vast majority of cases is not going to do It's not going to communicate the same things that it would have, but we have to extract from these principles and make application in our own context. And I want to provide what I believe should be the controlling question you and I need to be asking with regards to our fellowship with those walking in sin and falsehood relative to this framework. And here's the question right here. Relative to Objective effects and sober-minded inferences likely to be drawn is the action I am considering taking with this person or group likely to perpetuate falsehood and sin. No one is an omniscient knower. You can't know for certain whether what this effect or who's going to misperceive this or that, but that's not what the principle asks you to entertain. Relative to objective effects and sober-minded inferences that people could... Draw will likely draw is the action I'm considering taking with this person or group likely to perpetuate sin or falsehood. So, what do I mean by objective effects? I mean what happens regardless of of my desires, regardless of my little personal plan, regardless of my personal purpose or intents. Second, sober-minded inferences. I just mean I don't mean something very robust here. I just mean what an ordinary person, Christian or otherwise would be reasonable to conclude. I'm just talking about a boots-on-the-ground perspective here. Person's not intoxicated. They're not addicted. They're not crazy. Just kind of what your ordinary person would be justified in concluding. Let me conclude with some examples. When I was in college... Showed up at my girlfriend's house in Georgia, Savannah, Georgia, met her parents, and then they showed us back to our room where they had a queen size bed made up for us. And I was like, what on earth is this? And it was left to me to make it very awkward and tell them that the accommodations that they had made for me and their daughter, that it wasn't going to work for me. I was playing defense in this case. But if you turn it around, you can understand an example of what accommodating sin or approving particularly of sin might look like. It was very obvious, sadly, what they... Thought was going on, and they were wrong, just to be abundantly clear. Um, But they were expecting, they were approving, and they were accommodating this situation. This is where y'all will be sleeping. I think you can see how the principle applies right here. What would I be communicating if I had, in fact, just said, oh, you know what? Made some little Christian-sounding excuse. Well, you know, Ruth spent the night with Boaz once, and so what we can do is we can get in there and, and we can, uh, you know, we'll just we'll pray and then go to sleep and don't look at each other or something. Listen, there would be objective. There are things that would be communicated objectively. There would be affirmation that would be happening objectively. And if you are a parent. I can't. It's hard for me to say it without laughing. Do not, do do not set up a bed for 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 you know for your daughter or son when they come back from college or wherever with their new girlfriend or boyfriend and say here's where y'all are sleeping. It's just like meet the parents. No, no, Greg, you're way down in the basement. Remember? Yes. For all of the non-redemptive qualities of that movie, that is a good one. Way down in the basement. Let me give you another example. Um, I had a colleague at Dell who was a homosexual, and let's just not, let's not use my colleague at Dell. Let's and talk about it in general. Um, who said that uh, he's getting married, the gay wedding. Invite comes in the mail. You're invited to the union of John and Parker, we'll say. Now, let's suppose that I want to go because I've convinced myself that it would be a good opportunity to not ruin my witness. Or it would be a good opportunity to make sure I'm not considered one of those people. Here's the problem with that. A wedding, by definition, is a celebration. It is. It's a celebration. Even if I go for some other reason, per inside, deep down inside my heart, listen, I'm showing up to a celebration. Don't you think it could be reasonably concluded by people there that I'm there to participate and celebrate what's going on here? All right. Yes. So this principle that I've laid out here would rule something like that out. get another example. Suppose I help cover the legal expenses, the legal expenses, for someone's unbiblical divorce. Why are you getting divorced?, ah, I'm just tired of my spouse. They don't make me happy anymore. I'm just, you know, whatever. They're not engaging. They're this and that. We have differences that can't be reconciled. But divorce costs a lot. Someone comes to me to help cover the legal expenses for their unbiblical divorce. Now what, now what does it do when I finance that divorce? Well, even if I don't necessarily approve of it, I'm explicitly accommodating it. Here, I'll make your divorce. I'll make, here's an easier way for you to sin. Instead of working extra hours and doing this, I'm going to write a check for you to do what you shouldn't do. It's accommodation. Let me get another example. I make comments or I engage socially at work with my Muslim or my Jewish colleagues. Or maybe even my spiritual but not religious, whatever that means, colleagues. That suggests to them or everyone else watching that we're on the same team. Because we just aren't atheists or something like that. I don't know. I would say that such action, I would say if you interact in that way and you say, well, what is that way? I don't know the details of your office. I don't know what you say. I don't know the culture of your professional space. I, I don't know. But if I'm interacting in a way that could lead other people to plausibly think, oh, yeah, they're on the same team with regards to this issue, I'm undercutting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. Examples could be multiplied. I don't know how many I gave. Would I give four? And everyone is already thinking of theirs. Well, what about fill in the blank? This is what I hope to be a principle of wisdom right here. Between the objective effects that happen, that will occur, and sober-minded inferences that can be drawn. I know it would be nice to have a spreadsheet or a flow chart that told us what we are supposed to do and what we are not supposed to do, but that's not wisdom. That's how wisdom works. Wisdom is skillful living in the fear of the Lord. And so I hope as we consider this principle or something very close to it, that we would be protected from participating in wicked works, that we would hold to the teaching once for all delivered to the saints, and that we would hold out a message to the world and one another that says that Jesus Christ is King. Let's pray. God, we thank You for sending Your Son in the flesh to live a perfect life, to shed blood for the remission of sin, to rise triumphantly from the grave. And Lord, we know that because he has risen, one day we too will rise and we will gain a full reward. And I pray that we would be on guard. Our circumstances are not the same. The falsehoods that we encounter are, generally speaking, not the same. But Lord, falsehood in the churches, or at the pretending church at least, is at every corner Sometimes it just seems so right. It feels so soft. It seems so loving. I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom. That you would give us courage to do the hard thing. To live in holiness. To keep to the teaching. The truth that abides in us so that we can have the Father and the Son. We ask these things in the name of that Son.